from the Center for European Reform. This is the CER podcast. It is a critical moment. If we do not act with urgency, we would then severely undermine the liberal order. Brexit means Brexit, and we're going to make a success of it. The wind is back in Europe's sails. We have now a window of opportunity, but it will not stay open forever. Welcome to this special series of the Centre for European Reform podcast from our annual Ditchley Conference. My name is Sam Lowe, I'm a Senior Research Fellow at the CER. As we do every year, we've invited 49 of the world's top economists to gather in this wonderful stately home in the Oxfordshire countryside to discuss some of the big issues facing European policymakers. In this episode, I will be discussing Europe's role between the US and China with Alicia Garcia Herreno, Senior Fellow at Bruegel, and Martin Sambu, a commentator at the Financial Times. So this is actually a discussion we had yesterday, so yesterday morning. It was, it was, it was, quite, a, it was quite a good one. I enjoyed it a lot. My first question, I suppose, is Europe finds itself caught between an increasingly protectionist and belligerent United States and the ever-growing technological superiority of China. How does the EU best respond to this? Maybe I should start by saying that China is as belligerent as the US and as unilateral as the US. So we are actually caught between two very similar animals, just to you know rephrase yeah. the question. And it so happens that we are belligerent to start because we don't even have the resources to be very belligerent in terms of obviously our own army. And not only that, we're fragmented. So, you know, if, if you think about a block like China, let alone the US, compared to, to an increasingly fragmented Europe, and I think this not only started because of China pushing us apart, but actually because of the sovereign crisis in Europe, which in a way was kind of the peak of the mistrust, uh, which pulled us apart. I think we're basically not ready for this, for this challenge. And we can talk later as to what to do since we're not ready. But I would just start by saying we're really not ready for this. I agree with that. And I just want to add what is special about the challenge China poses to Europe. Between China and the US, and this came up in the discussion yesterday, there's a sort of military geostrategic dimension that Europe doesn't really have. But on the other hand, Unlike the US, we're not separated from China by a big empty ocean. We're separated by a densely populated landmass. And that means, you know, you can't really avoid bumping up against each other. And more than that, we see, if we have our eyes open, that there's a very conscious strategy from the Chinese side to try to create and shape the economy of the Eurasian continent in a way that creates an economic network with China at its center. Completely reasonable strategy. To, it's a smart thing to do. Um, but the result of it will be a world in which everyone depends on China in a way that China doesn't depend on anyone. That's the threat, if you like, the challenge for Europe. So, so what you can hear in the background is a gong being being hit because, because we're late for a session. But uh, we're going to just keep going for five minutes just to see if we can conclude this discussion. Um, so in the face of US protectionism, China rebalancing towards domestic consumption, what does this mean for the European growth model? Does it need to change or, or is, is it okay as it, as it is? I don't think it's an issue so much of the growth model as how we collectively in Europe use the economic heft that we have. And we should remember, we talk about Europe being squeezed between the US and China. In economic terms, the EU is absolutely unequal maybe even a bit more than equal than the other two. 
but we are fragmented, as Alicia said. We don't really know how to use this in a strategic way. I haven't even thought about how to. That's the first step that has to change. And again, China is using infrastructure, especially also technology. I'm thinking about the Belt and Road Project, where it tries to create trade routes, create economic networks that benefit it. The EU has to think in the same in the same ways. Could you agree? I can't agree more. And uh, perhaps the very specific example I would use is really our single market. I mean, we can compare our about about two, twenty trillion, eighteen to twenty, depending on how you measure. Uh, which is our GDP. economic size, including the UK, which, you know, uh, yeah, yeah. basically will pull us apart from the size of uh, the US and China's GDP. But let's forget about that now. That thing implies as basically an assumption that, that GDP is actually a single market, as it is for the US, as it is for China, which isn't the case. So so we, we already see that by not having a single market we can't really say we are a market as you know as big as the others not only that it so happens that uh, when one looks at uh, global value chain data which i did refer to yesterday it it gets very scary because for me i mean right before the uh, sovereign crisis in europe basically the idea was you know we have this wonderful currency maybe it's a little bit expensive for some but certainly cheap for germany but you have a market. We, we are your market. And the degree of uh, regional integration in the value chain was massive and, you know, and growing every year. Since then, and especially since 2014, which is you know, the period we focus on, 14 to 18, basically the, the four um, most recent years, our degree of integration of our value chain has collapsed, actually favoring our integration with China. So for me, the, the, the issue is we'd better realize that the single market is absolutely essential for our survival because, and, and actually within Europe, certainly for Germany, because that's really, sorry to say, the backyard. I mean, that's what it is. And if you are losing it because of promises, or not only promises, in some cases already exports of a few machinery and auto parts, you're losing your market. I mean, this is, somehow, you know, you're not realizing that by going there, you lose what you have here. And this is exactly what's happening in Europe. It's very sad because I don't think we're realizing that our integration is shrinking. I'm, I'm talking about trade, which supposedly is, you know, what we have left in terms of uh, uh, competences and, and clear vision of where we are heading. So, so it is... Um, to me, it's, it's really a problem that we do not see what's happening. And I'm, I'm not saying China is doing this on purpose and, you know, kind of terrible China, but China is doing what anybody else would do if you allow this to happen. And and we are allowing this to happen. So we are disintegrating our single market. What would be your policy response? I, I, I suppose the, 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 the crude answer is, well, we should further develop the single market. But yeah. but where, where's the focus? I guess that if I could have the economies of a scale that any Chinese company has in its own market, because my market is as big as, as you pointed out, Martin, uh, if I were you know, an ICT company that, that actually can, I don't need to create the subsidies that China has, if you, if you want to bring me there, yeah. because I know that <laughs> this is the truth. I don't need to be China. I just need to have a market. I need to have an integrated market so that I can compete, never on equal footing, because then they'll, get, they'll have their subsidies, their indigenous innovation. But, you know, we also have some kind of indigenous innovation ourselves, yeah, don't we? I mean, we have policies at, at, at the European uh, Commission level. But 
point is we don't have an integrated market. I, I completely agree. Uh, and we should not try to copy a strategy of, you know, behemoth companies that are subsidized by governments and so on. We have a fantastically uh, good competitive competitiveness policy system and competition policy system that is a strength of Europe. It makes for productive, a productive economy. We should keep that. But certainly, the ideal basically has to be to realize a single market in full, which means that wherever you are, even in the most remote corner of Europe, it should feel in all senses as if you can buy and sell anywhere in Europe with equal ease. That, that's a very simple way of putting what the goal is, very far from there. Uh, that, you know, part of that is better regulation, harmonized regulation, it's removing barriers that are still there. But uh, I mentioned infrastructure, so I want to say a bit about that to add to what, what Alicia yeah. was saying before. China has this thing called the 17 plus 1 initiative. Uh, the 17 refer to 17 East and Central European and South East European countries in and out of the EU uh, who are kind of partnering with the Belt and Road Initiative. That's fine, but the effect of it is that it's on the side and maybe undermines the EU structures for collective decision-making in the EU. How has China done this? Basically by promises to spend on infrastructure. Now, China spends, invests less in Europe than Europe invests in China in terms of greenfield new investments. So with very little money, actually, China has been able to, you know, maybe not quite peel off, but it's going in that direction. Uh, a lot of the eastern, southeastern uh, member states and neighboring states uh, in a way that makes it hard to have a coherent European strategy. So one place to start is just if China can make these promises, then so can Europe collectively to spend money on the sort of infrastructure, physical, software, digital, that actually brings that part of Europe completely close to Western Europe, the, the core of, of the European economy. And I, I, I'm not going to ask you to list them all, all now, but you had, you had seven points for Europe. I have a feeling this might be a column in the near future. I'm, I'm sure it will be. And, so, uh, so I won't ask you to spoil them now, but I think you've covered, you've covered a few of I've, them. I've covered a few of them. I want to mention another sort of set of things, which is we need to think about what Europe has to offer to third countries. So there are countries that are being wooed, if you like, by China. Again, promises of investment, promises of integration with the Chinese economy. You know, that's an, an attractive offer. Europe has to have an equally attractive offer. Part of that means that Europe has to be part of the infrastructure game as well, but also offer the thing that China cannot offer, which is as frictionless as possible access to the European economy, provided countries choose to go along with a European way of regulating, maybe European views on data standards, European privacy values, for example. Europe could come up with a package that combines market access on the condition that countries you know, move in a European direction. It doesn't mean Europe has to decide everything for them, but doing things in a European way. And that's eminently feasible, but it has to be put on the table uh, as, a, as an actual offer. Yeah, because I suppose to date a lot of the, the basis of Europe's status as a regulatory superpower has just been, hasn't necessarily been a focused effort. It's just been, we're big, we're modern, other countries converge. And I suppose what you're suggesting is actually being a bit more strategic about this. That, that's quite right. There's something called or known as the Brussels effect, yes. which is that because the EU market is big, Brussels. you know, Brussels regulations, they will be voluntarily adopted by other countries who want to export to Europe. Uh, but that's kind of been an unintended effect to the extent that it exists at all. To put a, a slightly too harsh word on it, you, you might want to weaponize it a bit. You might want to make this an explicit policy tool saying, look, it is our goal for others to align to these regulations. 
you know, we understand that that is a demand uh, and we have things to offer to uh, create incentives for that. So, so going back to the, to the sort of international sphere, so, so in this crisis of multilateralism, if China and the US do withdraw, so US has withdrawn for now, China is still engaging but could do potentially in the future, is, is the EU able to be the guardian of multilateralism on its own? Should well, it aspire to? I would rephrase again by saying that China is n- doesn't believe in multilateralism. China, I, in my opinion, hooks up to our multilateral system, uses it, rightly so, because the norms or, you know, the, the, we've given China this space. If you, if you look at the way the WTO was designed, it wasn't actually designed for a country that remained a state-driven economy. And it was designed to bring, you know, those transition economies to our core, uh, and I wouldn't say values because that's very general, but our core economic functioning, so our market economy uh, status. And it was never designed otherwise. So China chose uh, these institutions really selectively. China is not a member of the OECD, is not a member of the Paris Club. I mean, China knows pretty well what it wants to engage with and doesn't want. And at the very same time, it's created its own parallel universe of, of institutions, some more formal than others. Uh, of course, the, the Asian uh, Infrastructure Investment Bank being the most obvious one, but others, you know, looser forms of of, uh, of interaction or multilateralism, as they as the Chinese call it themselves, such as the Belt and Road Initiative. But the reality is that all of these initiatives, including the AIB, in my humble opinion, are hub and spoke. China is at the center. It's very different from the WTO. We may argue that the US was, you know, perceived as being at the center, but it wasn't designed to be. And 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 I think this is something that we need to realize that that the way we understand multilateralism isn't by any means what China understands by multilateralism. So in that regard, I would already by now take China out because it's not what we mean. Right. And therefore, we're alone in this endeavor. We're not alone. We have Canada. I mean, but frankly speaking, no matter how big our economies are, again, we're not a united front in a sense. We're not a market that we can just offer the true single market. So what we have to offer is not as compact as the other two. And therefore, I think it's very hard to expect the world to follow. I think this idea of at least looking at the neighborhood is is very clever because this would actually mean that we could at least carve out a region, you know. You know, the U.S. has its own Western Hemisphere, perhaps more than that. And then, it, you know, China seems to be having, you know, the biggest pack, which is Asia. But, you know, I'm just saying we should realize that this endeavor of kind of imposing multilateralism to the world is not going to work. It might be too late by the time we realize. Okay. On that important note... I think we'll conclude so that you can get to the final session. Thank you both very much. I've enjoyed this very much. And I'll speak to you guys soon. Thank you very much. It was great. Thank you, Martin. Thank you for listening to the CER podcast. If you have any feedback for us or want to leave suggestions for a future episode, then you can find us on Twitter at CER underscore EU.